But friends, if you have a Bible in front of you, I encourage you to have it open at the passage that Sandra read from us from Esther chapter 2, Esther chapter 2, and these first 18 verses that we're going to think about together this morning. Esther chapter 2 and verses 1 through 18. There was a program on TV a good few years ago now. It was a fairly niche program. I'm sure not too many of the, the, the good folks in First Port of Down would have watched it. It was a program entitled Here Comes Honey Boo Boo. It followed an eight-year-old girl called Alana Honey Boo Boo Thompson as she competed in various beauty pageants across America. It was a, a documentary, if you like, that detailed her life. It detailed the, the, the dedication that she had to have. It detailed the, the expense that she had to go to. It detailed all of the, the kind of beautifying treatments that this eight-year-old girl had to go through in order to get herself ready for these beauty pageants. Not surprisingly, it was cancelled after a few series. It showed her getting ready for the beauty pageants. It followed her life as she got ready. And in some senses, as we come to Esther chapter 2 this morning, in these 18 verses, that's what we come to, isn't it? It's Esther getting ready for her beauty pageant, if you like. A beauty pageant that's organized by the king to try and find a new queen. After he's cast off, after he's cast out the old queen, the king needs a new queen. And so this beauty pageant is organized. All of the most beautiful girls from across the 127 provinces that King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus reigns over, are brought. The one who pleases the king most, the one who's the most beautiful, the one who's the most satisfying to him, will become queen. It's kind of like the X factor of beauty pageants, if you like. Whoever wins gets the chance to become queen. Now, right at the outset here, we need to say our modern ears might recoil at such an obvious objectification of women, at such an obvious kind of display of male sexism, if you like. But what are we going to say this morning? And what we're going to see this morning, that behind all of the kind of outward things that we see, behind the outward beauty pageant, but behind the way that Esther is described as a beautiful young woman, is the hand of a good and loving God showing covenant love to his people. The hand of a good God directing affairs to keep his people safe. We're going to see three things this morning. Think about three things from Esther chapter 2. Firstly, we're going to see an exiled queen. We see how this whole process comes about to replace Vashti. Secondly, then, we're going to see an exiled people that are in the midst of this crisis in government, if you like, in the midst of this crisis that Xerxes is going through, we meet this exiled people, Mordecai, and his young daughter, quote-unquote, Esther. But then thirdly and finally, we're going to see an embraced woman, how Esther wins favor with basically everyone that she meets. An exiled queen, an exiled people, and an embraced woman. So first then, an exiled queen, an exiled queen, and we see that in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, an exiled queen. So last week we thought a little bit with Robin about how uh, Vashti met her end. We saw the demise of Queen Vashti. She refused to perform the wishes of the king, and therefore this edict was issued against her. This proclamation went out throughout all of Xerxes' kingdom that Queen Vashti was no longer welcome in his presence, that Queen Vashti was no longer to appear before his face. We also saw at the end of that, uh, that edict that went out, didn't we, that each woman was to show that she respected her husband. So that's the background then. That's the backdrop to what we read here in chapter 2. 
And we see that in verse 1. After these things, when the king's anger had abated, when Xerxes had calmed down a little bit, he remembered Vashti. He remembered the way that she'd been disobedient. He remembered all of the things that she'd done. He remembered the edict that had been issued against her. Now, quite how long has passed in verse 1, we're not sure. Quite how long after these things entails in verse 1, we're not quite sure. What we do know is that Esther became queen about four years, three or four years after Vashti had been deposed. So there's obviously a little bit of a time lag between the two events. In the intervening time, Xerxes was busy fighting his wars, but Xerxes was busy trying to expand his empire. Xerxes was busy trying to conquer the rest of the world. He'd been fighting the Greeks. He'd been busy fighting and losing against the Spartans. He'd been busy fighting and losing against the Greeks. But after all of these things, when he calms down, I think the author wants us to get the impression here that Xerxes regrets his decision. Now, now why do I say that? Well, he remembered his queen. He sat down, he had peace finally, and he thought about his queen. He, do- he thought, no doubt, about the way that she'd embarrassed him, the way that she disobeyed him. But he also remembered the decree that had been made about her. He also remembered how this decree had went out, that she was not to appear before his face again. That decree, remember, that couldn't be revoked, that, that decree according to the law of the Medes and the Persians that couldn't be altered or changed. And I think there's a sadness in the king. There's a melancholy in the king as he remembers Vashti. It's a good reminder to us that we're better often to wait before raising a thorny issue until our anger has abated. Words that are said in anger are words that cannot be taken back. Hurried, harsh, angry words often bring a lot of heat but not much light to a situation. They often bring a lot of strife, but not much good to a situation. And when our anger abates, we may wish that we never said those words, much as I think Xerxes here wishes that he'd never said these words about Vashti. And the reason that I think that Xerxes is missing his queen, the reason that I think Ahasuerus here is sad is because of what we read in verse 2. The reason I think he's lonely is because of what we read in verse 2. His young men come to him, they see the king, and essentially their advice to him is what? Look, let's go and look for another king. Let's, let's go and find another queen, sorry. Let's go and find someone who can replace Queen Vashti. Let all these beautiful young virgins be brought. Now, if Ahasuerus, if Xerxes was sitting there glad to be shot of Vashti, glad to have that problem out of his hair, I don't think the young men would have suggested this course of action, would they? Rather, the, queen, the king is missing his queen. The king is missing that companionship and that comfort from his queen. And the clear implication here is that he's missing her. And so the young men say, well, look, we can't bring her back. The law and the meads of the Persians can't be changed. Therefore, she can't appear before his face. So what are we going to do? Well, the obvious solution is let's go and find another queen. Let's go and find another companion for her. And notice the huge expense. Notice the huge effort that's gone to to try and find this new queen. Verse 3. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel. So you're talking, well, we're told he reigns over 127 provinces. So we're talking 127 officials who are sent to look out for these beautiful young women. You're talking about 127 young women to be brought, to be kept 
And as we see in verse 3, uh, that they're to be given their cosmetics. There's a certain amount of cost. There's a certain amount of monetary outlay in this. There's no effort that's going to be spared. There's no stone that's going to be left unturned searching for this new queen. Then verse 4, let the young woman who pleases the king, let the young woman who's the most beautiful, who's the most acceptable in the king's sight, be queen instead of Vashti. This pleases the king. He follows their advice as he so often does. And a new queen will be sought. Queen Vashti is exiled. Queen Vashti is sent away. Queen Vashti is not allowed to appear before the, the king again. And a new queen is sought. But secondly then, we think about this exiled people. We've seen the queen, Queen Vashti, being exiled. But secondly then, we think about an exiled people. And we see that in verses 5 through 11. So it's in verse 5 that we're introduced to this exiled people. We see that, don't we? Now, there was a Jew in Susa the Citadel. The obvious question is, what's he doing there? Why is there a Jew in Susa the Citadel? Why is there a Jew in the middle of the Babylonian Empire? Why is there a Jew in the middle of Persia? We see that in verse 6, don't we? We see the reason why. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives are carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So we see right away why he's there. He's been exiled. He's been taken from his homeland, or at least his family had, and has been brought into the heart of the Babylonian Empire. But notice verse 5. There's almost an irony here, isn't there? Because the king has sent out this edict. The king has sent out all these messengers across his 127 provinces to look for a new queen. And where will the new queen come from? Well, the new queen will come from Susa the citadel. The new queen will come, metaphorically speaking, from right under his nose. What's this man called? What's this exile called? There was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now there are a few things that we need to notice here about Mordecai. First of all, we need to say that Mordecai was probably his Babylonian name, his Persian name. The same way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the, 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 the Persian names that were given to Daniel's three friends. So Mordecai is probably the Persian name that's been given to this man. Morduk was one of the Babylonian gods. Morduka was a fairly common name in Babylon, which would reach us then as Mordecai, as the kind of Jewish version of that name of Morduka, Mordecai. Mordecai was a fairly significant figure, most likely. The fact that his family had been exiled at all probably told us that he was of a relatively significant family. It was the nobles and the officials who were deported. It was the nobles and the officials who were taken away from the Jewish lands. And we get a bit of a handle, we get a bit of an insight into Mordecai and his family, don't we? We see that here in verse 7. We're told that Mordecai is bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Here we see Mordecai acting as a redeemer. Here we see Mordecai acting as the kinsman for Esther. Here we see Mordecai putting his own comfort aside, putting his own financial aspirations aside, and doing the right thing by his uncle, by raising his daughter when she had no one else to look out for her. He is keen to help a member of his family who's struggling. He's keen to step into the breach when there's no one else to look after Esther. He takes on this child at huge personal cost 
to himself. He looks after her. He cares for her when no one else will. Suzanne and I recently took out some uh, life insurance. And as part of that, we kind of had to talk about who we wanted the children to go to in the event that anything should happen to us. You know, if we die, then we want our children to be raised by dot, dot, dot. Now think about that. That's quite a lot of personal commitment, isn't it, to the individual involved? There will, God willing, be five of them by the end of May. So that's a, that's a big undertaking. But the person involved readily agreed to do it. So too with Mordecai, when his uncle and his uncle's wife die, he agrees to step into the breach. He agrees to raise Esther as his own daughter. He agrees to look after her in the place of his uncle and his wife. But of course here, Mordecai, as we thought about with the boys and girls, Mordecai points us ahead beyond himself to the great Redeemer, doesn't he? The great one who came at such a personal cost, the great one who sacrificed not only his personal finances, but who sacrificed his life so that we might come to know God. It points us ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one through whom we have right relationship with God this morning. Mordecai points us ahead and shows us a picture of the redemption that is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Mordecai was Esther's redeemer, so the Lord Jesus Christ is our redeemer this morning. We find out in verse 7 that she's a, a beautiful girl. She's an attractive girl to look at. And when this edict goes out from the king, when the word gets out that he's looking for the beautiful young virgins of his provinces, she is the one of the ones who is brought. She is one of the ones who's taken into the king's harem. And we're told that she was put in charge of Haggai. Now notice this, just there's a little thread running through this, a little thread of God's protection, God's provision. Esther's mother and father die. What happens to her? She's put into the care of Mordecai. God's there providing Mordecai to look after her. Esther's taken into the harem. And what's happened? God provides and raises up this man, Haggai, to look after her. God provides, cares for, and protects his people. Oftentimes he will use means to do that, of course, as he does with Mordecai and as he does with Haggai. But God will always care for and protect his people. Notice here how it's described in verse 9, this protection, this care that Haggai has for her. Verse 9, the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided with her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. It's an important biblical idea to understand here that as the, the, the passage here speaks about Esther winning his favor. The term that's used here is a very big, bold biblical idea. The term that's used here is hesed. Now, as we read our Old Testament, as we come across this term hesed, it most often speaks to us of the covenant love that God has for his people, that love that will not let his people go. I just love this idea because here, without being mentioned, here without being named, the author is dropping little hints to his people. The Jewish people who would have been reading this as they read Hesed, they would have thought of the covenant love of God. 
So here is the covenant love of God showing itself because Esther wins favor in the sight of this man, Haggai. Esther wins his favor and he takes care of her. Esther wins his hesed and he takes care of her. It's in the assurance this morning of the covenant love of God. That love of God that sets itself on his people, not because they're particularly lovely, not because they're particularly lovable, not because his people have done anything to deserve it. It's that covenant love of God for his people that sets itself on us, that draws us in this morning, that draws us near this morning. The love of God that will not let us go. The love of God that will not cast us off. The love of God that embraces us as sons and daughters this morning. The love of God that sent Jesus to the cross. The covenant love that invites us to come this morning. Haggai looks after her. He gives her the best of food. He gives her these seven young women from the, 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 the palace. He gives her the cosmetics that she needs. He gives her the best place in the harem. He basically gives her everything she wants. But then we come to verse 10, and it kind of shocks us a little bit, doesn't it? Because what we read, verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Some people read this, and they'll say, well, look, see, Mordecai here has accommodated himself to Babylonian culture. Mordecai here is ashamed to be known as a Jew. Mordecai here doesn't want his family history coming out. And so therefore he tells Esther when she goes into the palace, look, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Don't let anyone know that you're a Jew, for goodness sake. Make sure everyone thinks you're a good Babylonian girl. But I'm not convinced by that. Mordecai's action later on will show us that he isn't in fact ashamed of being a Jew. Rather, I think Mordecai can feel the, the anti-Jewish sentiment building within the empire. He wonders at God's provision if God is raising Esther to this point for a particular purpose, for a particular reason. And so he says to her, look, don't, don't rock the boat. Don't let anyone know you're a Jew. For who knows, maybe God's raised you to the kingdom for just a time as this. And notice the love and devotion that he still has in verse 11. Esther may have been taken from his charge, but she will not be taken from his care. Every day, verse 11, every day he goes to the, 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 the palace, every day he goes to the harem's court to find out how things are with Esther. So we've seen an exiled queen, we've seen an exiled people, and then thirdly we see an embraced woman, an embraced woman, and we see that in verses 12 through 18. This embraced woman, no longer cast off, no longer pushed away, but instead brought near. But the process of getting to the end is a little bit seedy, isn't it? It's a little bit, if we're honest, it's a little bit uncomfortable for us this morning, isn't it? Because it starts, verse 12, uh, that, that as the, the woman was about to go into the king, before that she's had this year of beautifying herself. She's had this year of the best spa treatments that money can buy. She's had a, a year of pampering herself with these oils and spices, with the, the, the myrrh. And when she goes into the king, she's given whatever it is that she desires, whatever it is that she wants, whatever it is she thinks that will please the king is brought with her. She would go in and spend the night with the king with all that that entails. And then in the morning she would return to the harem, waiting to see if the king would remember her, waiting to see if the king would ever call for her by name 
again. Verse 15, Esther's turn comes. We're told this time a little bit more about her. We're told that her father is Abihail. She doesn't ask for anything other than what Haggai tells her to do. Here was a man who knew the king. Here was a man who knew what the king wanted, what the king liked. And she's therefore content to leave herself in Haggai's hands. I mean, Haggai hasn't let her down this far. Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And this extends, verse 17, even to the king. He loved her more than all the women he'd seen. He was more taken with her than all of the women that he'd seen thus far. And he sets the royal crown on her head and makes her queen instead of Vashti. So delighted was the king with her that he gives a feast in her honor, that he declares a, 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 a rebate of taxes, if you like, that he declares this public holiday. Kind of blows a, a commemorative plate out of the water anyway, doesn't it? But what are we going to do with this? There's so much sin in this passage, it's hard to know where to start, isn't it? We have the king taking so many women to himself. We have king having so many relations with women outside of marriage, outside of that bond that God has established for relations. We have one of God's people engaging in the same activity, and yet seemingly God blessing it. So what are we going to do with it? How do we understand this passage? Well, firstly, we need to remind ourselves that God never excuses, God never lets go of sin or sinful behavior. God's holiness will not allow him to tolerate even an ounce of sin, even the merest hint of sin. Justice demands here that sin be paid for, that sin be atoned for. That's the baseline. That's the, the standard that we set, if you like. But what we can say is that God does use sinful human decisions and choices to advance his purposes. God does not tolerate sin. God does not wink at sin. God does not minimize sin. But he does use human sinful choices to advance his purposes, mainly here, the salvation of his people. We see that in Esther. Esther is brought to the throne for such a time as this, to save God's people. Despite the sinfulness of getting there, despite the sin in the passage, God uses it to advance his purposes. We see it most clearly, of course, with the Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified despite having done no wrong. That crucifixion, that evil, sinful act of man that brought many sons to glory. Sin will always be punished, but God's purposes will not be thwarted by sin, as we see at the cross of Christ. God never excuses sin, but can use sin to advance his glory and his purposes can use the actions of sinful men to bring about his good ends. Now, does that mean that we should just sin with abandon? That we have a carte blanche to sin and say, well, look, God may use this sin to bring about his glory. God may use this sin to bring about his purposes. Of course not. That's what Paul reminds us of in Romans, isn't it? What shall we say then? Shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? By no means but rather we're to seek holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Amen and amen.